Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my highly nonlinear friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, we explore alternative parameterizations of the SEM-based latent curve model to capture various forms of nonlinearity, some that are approximations and others that are exact. Along the way, we also discuss Swifties, Remastering Your Life, Bull Testicles, The World's Worst RA Job, Yerkes Dodson Law, Show a Little Ankle, The St. Louis Arch, Bachelorette Parties, Deck Screws, DIYing a model, being a little too quiet, complete nonsense, blasting your pecs, haters gonna hate, the worst day ever, Frankenspline's monster, being left off at the third floor, and looking for a new co-host. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I don't know how much you pay attention to entertainment news or specific, specifically Taylor Swift-related news. You might be a closet Swifty, I don't know. But did you see that she's re-recording giant chunks of her catalog? I was not aware of that. <laughs> Admittedly, that is not high on my list of things that I track. <laughs> okay. Have you heard of Taylor Swift? Now, interestingly, I have twin teenagers who would be that targeted demographic. It brings me great joy that they intentionally are no part of it whatsoever. <laughs> it's like, that's my kids. <laughs> so for legal reasons, she did not apparently have the rights to a lot of her songs and they were sold. They don't know all the legal details, but her maneuver was, screw you guys, I'm going to re-record all of them in what are often labeled Taylor's version, and just literally going through song by song, album by album, creating a whole new thing so that she has the rights to those recordings to do with as she sees fit, which of course devalues to some extent the original ones. And I think that's just a big old middle finger in the air that I kind of respect, honestly. I know nothing about her music other than obliquely that you probably shouldn't date her because at some point... <laughs> You're going to be torn a new one in a song that a hundred million people listen to. I remember when we broke up the first time saying this is it, I've had enough. Cause like we hadn't seen each other in a month when you said you needed space. What? One of the things I like in particular, as she goes back and redoes these songs, on the one hand, you could just do them exactly the same way. But I'll tell you what, if I had to redo something I had done before, it would be really hard for me to do that, right? I'd be staring at it and I might say, oh, that note could be held a little bit longer. Or what if we put in a little something in the background? So she's doing not just a re-recording, but a little bit of glow up on some of the things that she's doing. Wouldn't that be great if you could apply that to everyday life? <laughs> You have your whole disc catalog, and then you can say, you know what, I'm going to go back and redo the entire thing. It does get you thinking about your entire arc of life, both professional and personal. If you could go back in the recording studio and lay down a, air quote, new track of decisions you've made, that's a terrifying thought. So first of all, I really like that now the conversation about Taylor Swift has led you to reflect on your entire life. <laughs> that's really nice. And I'll be sure to tell your kids about that. <laughs> Thing two is, what would you do differently? I mean, looking back, whether it's life or job or whatever, if you could re-record it, what changes would you make? Dude, we don't have the time. 
<laughs> my hard drive is not big enough uh-huh. to hold the audio file. Well, let's focus on professionally or even just scholarship. In terms of papers that you've written, are there things that you're like, yeah, I wish I had that one back. If I could redo that, are there aspects of things that you've written that you would change? I think it would be less in what I wrote and more in how deferential I was to reviewers earlier in my career. Hmm. And there's so much pressure to get publications, get things out. You got to build your CV for tenure review. Mm -hmm. I took a couple of bullets where I modified a paper or put in a section to appease a reviewer that I would not do now. I would also maybe tell you to cut yourself a little bit of slack in the sense that who you are now is not the person that you were then, and maybe you were who you needed to be at that particular time. You know, when I go back through papers that I have written, you might know I'm a little bit picky, (laughs) hard to live with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you. All I said was... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Noted. You know, so there's a lot of wording that I would change and all of that. But, you know, one of the areas that I might have changed when I first learned about growth modeling in the mid 90s, I was just crazy excited about it. But I could really only think about it in terms of pounding a line into every trajectory that you had. And, you know, I sort of would talk myself into, yeah, you know, that's an approximation of change. And it is. But the truth is, I was really just kind of limited in my understanding about how we can translate growth into this parameterization of a structural equation model. And the maximum of my cleveritude (laughs) was linear. But if I could go back in time, I'd probably think a lot harder about other functions that could govern change over time. And I would be the one to say, cut yourself a little slack. Hmm. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to know Bill Meredith. He was such an interesting guy. Mm -hmm. And I got to talk to him about latent curve modeling. And if you are in growth modeling or latent curve modeling, the original Meredith and TSAC is required reading. This is like the genesis of this. Mm -hmm. But Bill always believed that identifying the functional form was an approximation. And you would take that approximation and then go do other things with it. I often view model building, whether it be in growth modeling or just in the broader general linear model, we're trying to get an approximation to the relations that we observe within the range of our data, and then we go and do things with that. So I don't know. I'm okay with pounding a line if it's an approximation But like everything, there's too much of a good thing. And when does it move from an approximation to a misspecification? Frankly, I was just going around fitting lines to damn near anything because (laughs) I knew knew how, right? And it was cool. And a lot of other people didn't know how to do it. So that could get me pretty far. But I was asked to review a paper. I have the invitation in front of me right now. Starts off strong. Dear Hancock. (laughs) All right. I am writing to invite you to review a manuscript for, insert journal here, entitled Fitting Nonlinear Models for Describing Testicular Volume Growth Curve in Nellor Bulls. Yeah, I hope you don't mind. I got up a little early, so I took the liberty of milking your cow for you. We don't have a cow. We have a bull. (laughs) It is at this point in the conversation that we need to pause And I will ask anybody out there to Google an image of a Nellore bull, N-E-L-L-O-R-E bull. Go ahead. We'll wait. Okay. As you can see from the interwebs, it is a massive bull. And if you are so far 
<laughs> fortunate to have included testicles in your search, you will see what I was asked to review a paper about. But the thing that struck me was that here I am fitting a line to all these different things, but other fields are like, no, processes are nonlinear. You know that something is legit when it has made it all the way to the bull testicle literature. Do you know the only thing worse than being the data analyst on that project <laughs> is being the data collector? <laughs> I'm just saying. Hey, what'd you do in grad school? <laughs> well, <laughs> funny story. <laughs> Speaking of bull testicles, we need to differentiate what we mean by linear and nonlinear. Because there remains, I have found, confusion in the literature, confusion among students, often confusion even in teaching, is what do we mean by linearity? Why is it called the general linear model? And like so much in life and quant, it's defined by with respect to what? Mm -hmm. So very briefly, let's start with the general linear model. I'm not even talking about growth yet. T-test and over-regression, however you define that. Unambiguously, that is a linear model. And I have heard senior people say, well, you should never use the general linear model because psychology is too complex for linear relations. Mm -hmm. It's a misfit and you need to consider other things. And what that's doing is confusing two sources of nonlinearity. Back in the day, anybody who's had an intro psych class has been exposed to what's called the Yerkes-Dodson law. Ooh picture in your mind's eye, you've got an x-axis and a y-axis. On the x-axis is anxiety, mm -hmm. and on the y-axis is performance. And picture within the plot is the St. Louis Arch, <laughs> a quadratic parabola. If it goes up, it peaks, and it comes down. Mm -hmm. That is breathtakingly nonlinear, all right? And what that shows is that at very low levels of activation, your performance is not high. At very high levels of activation, your performance is not high, right? At very low Low, you're not engaged at very high you're incapacitated and there's an optimal part of that curve where if you are engaged in the task you optimize your performance mm -hmm. well that's nonlinear in the relation between the predictor and the outcome it is linear in the parameters. And what that means is we can write an equation that says performance equals an intercept plus a weighted contribution from anxiety plus a weighted contribution from anxiety squared. It is linear in the parameters. You are weighting these contributions and adding them together. It's a factual error to say the general linear model cannot model nonlinear relations among your predictors and the outcome. We can square things. We can cube things. We can take products of other variables. Go nuts. Yep. It's a bachelorette party in <laughs> wherever you go for bachelorette parties. I don't know. Oddly, have never been invited to one. Uh -huh. But what you can't do is what's called nonlinear in the parameters. Now picture in your mind's eye beta naught plus e to the beta times x. As soon as you put something up in the cockpit, that's nonlinear in the parameters. Or beta squared times x, or any of an infinite number of things. And so I think the very first thing getting into this conversation is differentiating, well, when you say nonlinear, are you inferring nonlinearity with respect to the relation between the predictors and the outcome? 
Or are you talking about nonlinear with respect to the parameters themselves? And that sets the stage for a lot of things that we can talk about, because if on your x-axis, instead of it being anxiety, where you need just a little bit of juices flowing to be able to optimize performance, if instead of anxiety on that axis, we have time, and then on the y-axis, we have some outcome There is some trajectory that describes what we do. And that trajectory, you know, maybe it's the St. Louis Arch, just like you described. That would be a weird thing to have over time. But you start off strong, you go up and you peak, and then you start coming. Oh, that's like us intellectually. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You just (laughs) described our entire career. All right, I admit it. I am the Lindbergh baby. Are you trying to stall us or are you just senile? A little from column A, a little from column B. (laughs) Yeah. So if we were characterizing that where time is on the x-axis, we could say that whatever our outcome variable is y, (laughs) like our own cognitive capacity, our outcome is equal to some intercept plus some slope times t plus some slope times t squared. And if we had some more complex function that could be described by these polynomials as we're doing right now, that would be linear in those parameters. On the other hand, if we have some kind of exponential growth or logistic change, something like that, there's no way to wrestle those parameters out of that function. And that's where we would have something that is nonlinear in the parameters. So both of these are relevant for the kinds of things that we might want to do in modeling nonlinear growth. For this discussion, think about that we have repeated measures in some construct over time. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's reading ability. Maybe it's alcohol use in adolescence, whatever it might be. And we have observed these repeated measures within some given window. Let's just make up an example. We take monthly assessments of reading ability during first grade. Mm -hmm. So somehow we have maybe six repeated measures, three in the fall, three in the spring. Our interest is what is the course causes and consequences of change over time? What we're talking about here is the course. How does reading ability change over time in our sample of children? What is the shape of that? Is there individual variability in that? Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes that's the end of the discussion. Look, guys, look what I found. It starts here. It goes there. Some people are higher. Some people are lower. More often, we then use that to go to somewhere else to say, well, if this is the shape, these are the individual differences, I wonder if there are differences as a function of certain child characteristics or certain family characteristics or certain teacher characteristics. Is there a teacher impact that accelerates reading over the first year? But holy cow, it is crazy important that we get that course correct or at least as approximately correct as we're able before we move to predicting it. Because if it's a really pretty curve and you go out in the garage and get deck screws in your power driver and you bolt on a linear because it's easier to interpret rise over run than it is change in the rate of change, Mm -hmm. you have a misspecified model and everything downstream from that is threatened in terms of both internal and external validity. I love the example that you gave about measuring reading monthly. Old me (laughs) would have just bolted a line in there like you described. But imagine I had a good theoretical reason to think that I don't think a line really is going to describe that. There's a whole host of options that go from really, really simple to really, really heinously messy. And what I thought we could do is just progress through those so we can understand what all the things are in the toolbox. How's that sound? That's great. Because again, I think there's a lot of confusion 
opinion on what you can and can't do. Greg and I met before we started recording, and I made a statement about how in this particular way you couldn't isolate a random effect, so the utility was limited. And Greg very politely smiled and said, well, Chris Preacher and I figured that out in 2015. This is really complicated. Let's try to string some barbed wire around for old guys like me that says, oh, you figured out this big problem eight years ago and I wasn't even aware of it. Okay. I'm going to start off very, very easy. You know, when we do a latent growth model, and of course, latent growth models are not the only way to approach growth and their connections to the multi-level model. We had a whole episode on that and you have written really, really nice stuff that I did read. (laughs) (laughs) I felt a little bad about that. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to read one of your papers. Okay. But they're hard. Like, you have a paper with vernacular in the title. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. You need a Folger edition like Shakespeare, where there's a whole other page that has what the <laughs> words mean. Kind of. My general rule is if there's a word in the title I don't understand, why bother reading the paper? Current out. The first thing, a specified model. When we do a growth model that's linear, as we learned from Mary and TSAC to start, if they have equally spaced measures, the very common thing to do is to set your loadings for your growth factor at zero, one, two, three, or some multiple of that. But what if I had some very, very firm belief that growth goes zero, one, two, and then it changes? Maybe it goes two and a half, three, three and a quarter, right? Now, why on earth would I have something like that? Well, I might have some experience with what tends to go over the school year, and I want to see whether or not that pattern fits the data I have. I can hard code specific weights in there and see how that model fits. And that would probably be the simplest and maybe the most gutsy, because that's where I'm owning every single loading. That is a starting way that you could approach this. What you're doing is DIYing differential rate of change instead of constant rate of change. And when you think about a line, you learned rise over run. A one unit change in time is associated with some gamma unit change in Y, whatever that might be. Well, what does that mean? Let's say you have a slope of 0.5. Well, if you move from zero to one on time, the model implied value of the outcome on average increases 0.5. If you move from one to two, two to three, three to four, change is constant with respect to time. That's how a line works. But what Greg is raising is, well, what if model implied change is not constant over time? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a one unit change in Y with a one unit change in time, but then it goes to a 0.5 unit change But then it goes to a 0.25 unit change. Mm -hmm. Now we have, are you ready for it? Change in the rate of change. And many of you just had a chill because it reminded you of some awful calc class that you may have had years ago. But that is the cornerstone of calculus. I really like this as a starting point because you, again, instead of saying time is 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you're hard coding that in and it becomes a testable hypothesis, right? We can compare that to a linear. We can compare that to no change at all. But here's the problem. You get an attaboy for making a strong statement But it's no different than a linear. You're fixing the linear slope, and now you're hard-coding some arbitrary change in the rate of change. But maybe that doesn't represent the characteristics of the data. So that's extremely rigid. 
At the other end of the continuum, the least rigid of this type of parameterization, I used the term promiscuous model (laughs) recently. The promiscuous version of this would be maybe I set the first loading to zero, like we often do to set the intercept at the first time point. I set the second loading, let's say, to one. And so the amount of change that goes from the initial time point to the second time point really sets what I mean by change. And then I free all the other loadings, right? They become unspecified. I sometimes in my highly technical way refer to this as the bendy straw model. <laughs> because you know those bendy straws that are just fun to play with? They go <laughs> when you pull on. You're just looking at me. <laughs> So an unspecified growth model, you have to just fix two of those loadings and then allow the others to be free. And it is going to go and sort of bend itself to the contour of growth in a way that resonates with the pattern of data that you have overall. That's very, very flexible. I don't know what it means. Yeah, it's like the old Western movie where one guy says, Sure is quiet out there. Too quiet. (laughs) It's flexible, but maybe it's too flexible. And I used to be a fan of these models. Mm -hmm. And Meredith and TSAC talked about these in their original paper and referred to them as a latent basis function where you freely estimate these. I see two problems with them. What they're achieving is Greg's original idea was, well, let's set it to 0, 1, 2, 3, 3.5, 3.75, 5, whatever it might be. And this is saying, well, instead of fixing them a priori, let's go ahead and get an optimal estimate from the characteristics of the data themselves. We're estimating them to obtain the values that will best replicate the mean vector and the covariance matrix that you observed. And that's really important here because that's the driving force. The model cannot plumb the depths to which it does not care about your theory. We're getting a data-driven, optimized value, but two things happen. One is, I've used these a lot over a lot of years. I have yet to find one that didn't fit the data well. Yep. There's your promiscuity. I think I made a gag out of it for uh, sponsors about Victorian England or something. You did. I'll show a little ankle. <laughs> But here's the bigger problem for me, Greg, when I use these in my own work. In the spirit of we want to identify the optimal functional form so that we can take it elsewhere, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it means when there is individual variability in the propensity to change nonlinearly over time, right? Because we always got to think about that latent factor. And Meredith talked about this as it's now the shape factor. But I may want to predict that by a set of exogenous covariates. And I don't know what a one-unit change represents is to say a one-unit change in parents' education is associated with a gamma-unit change in a child's propensity to change nonlinearly over time. I don't know what that is. Yep, I agree. Sometimes I might run one of those just to compare to a linear model to see whether I would formally choose one model over the other because a linear model obviously is more parsimonious and can't fit in the absolute sense better. But like in an information criterion sense, I might actually choose the model where you hard code loadings, linear or otherwise, against an unspecified model. So I'll often run it just to get a sense of what's going on. But I'll tell you, I have no freaking idea what to do with it on a theoretical level afterwards. And so that moves me into being a little bit more formal 
but not so formal like the specified model. And one of the ways of being a bit more formal you alluded to, and that is to bring polynomial kinds of things in there, right? To get the St. Louis arch in there, not just have time represented as T, but maybe having time represented also as T squared and God forbid T cubed, etc. This introduces the notion of change in the rate of change. And we do have to think momentarily about first and second derivatives. So now what I want you to do is picture in your mind's eye an X, Y axis. And let's go ahead and have that St. Louis arch. But now instead of having anxiety and performance, we have time and reading ability. And picture a part of a quadratic trajectory. And I say part because we can look at sections of it. It doesn't have to be the entire St. Louis arch. Is that it goes up and slows and peaks and turns over at the end. Remember, any polynomial has to turn over. Whether it turns over and goes back down or turns and goes up is they're bounded by plus and minus infinity, which we're going to see is one of the limitations of the polynomial as they always keep changing. We now have an intercept, we have a linear component to the curve, and we have a quadratic component to the curve. And how we can think about that is the intercept is always our buddy who picks us up at the airport, no matter how late the plane is. In our Taylor Swift example, that would be the members of Taylor's squad who go in and throw out the jerseys of the, <laughs> last, the last person that she broke up with, right? It's nice to have a friend. The intercept is where that curve crosses the y-axis. Mm -hmm. So that is the model implied value of the outcome when time is zero, if that's how we code the intercept. Great. That's where the start of the curve is. There is so much confusion I've seen in literature and in teaching about what is the linear and the quadratic component represent. The linear picture a tangent line to the curve at time equal to zero. So there's only one point that that line can touch the curve, and that is the linear component of a quadratic trajectory. Sometimes that's called instantaneous velocity. And how I teach about it is you see a picture of a race car that's going 180 miles an hour, but it's a picture. It was going 180 <laughs> miles an hour at that moment in time. Right. It's instantaneous velocity. Now picture, as time moves forward, that tangent line creeps up the curve. Well, if it's a St. Louis arch, that slope is getting smaller and smaller, right? Well, change is slowing. That is the second derivative. It is change in the rate of change, which is acceleration. Now here, we have positive and negative, so it's actually deceleration. But what I really like about this is the linear trajectory says that your rate of change is constant across time. And when we add the squared component, we're just saying, no, the rate of change is changing with a function of time. And we're now representing that by another latent variable. I like these. At least I like the idea of them, that I have a factor that represents linear change and then having a quadratic where you square the loadings. It's not actually the only way that you can do it because you can center your reference point not just at time zero. You could center your reference point at any point. You could center it at the middle point or the height of the parabola. You can center it in a variety of different locations. So I like the idea behind the polynomial growth function. But one of the problems I have with these models, and I don't know if you experience this, is that they often give you complete nonsense results. Oh, yeah. I was not going to raise that. <laughs> because it undermines it a little bit. 
other than that. They're <laughs> an absolute bear to estimate. You get non-positive definite matrices. You get zero variance estimates. You get correlations of 1.1. And even if you do get a proper model, you've got a really good estimate of individual variability and change in the rate of change over time. <laughs> so go ahead and predict that by treatment condition and parent education. I mean, we really are taking this really pretty nonlinear trajectory and we're breaking it down into three separate components, but they kind of only make sense when you bolt them back together. And so if the long con is to predict trajectories of reading ability, isolating a second derivative as a random variable doesn't always work the way we hope it does. I always describe the path from a predictor coming into the quadratic factor as, well, that predicts how curvy you are. Right. I mean, I don't know what the hell else to say about it. Yeah. Some people might be flatter, not have as much arc to their personal parabola, and other people might be much more peaked, but have no freaking idea what to do with that in the end. Now, there are other more interesting aspects of a parabola. For example, I might be interested in knowing when somebody peaks. Well, that's not an immediate part of that particular function. It's in there somewhere. But like you said, the way that we piece this out in terms of the polynomial components might not really be getting at things that we care about. The function as a whole is, but the elements of it that we're parameterizing as latent variables might not do it for us. And there's a neat paper by two guys you and I both know well, Stephen Detroit and Bob Kudek. Mm -hmm. They take the quadratic and reparameterize it into values that may be more interpretable. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool. But the quadratic has its own limitations. So let's swirl wine, right? Because somehow people are always swirling wine. I don't know why. <laughs> but swirl wine and say, well, all of education and psychology is too complex to fit linear model. We need to fit a nonlinear. And so you go to a quadratic. Those are bounded between negative infinity and positive infinity. Right. So if we're looking at reading ability and we fit a quadratic, mathematically, if that's going up, it has to go back down. Then you flex your muscles because you blasted your pecs that morning. And you said, well, then make it a cubic because a cubic will turn it back up. But then it heads toward positive infinity. Mm hmm. I don't know how many of you grew up in snow states, but I grew up in Colorado. You hit a patch of ice, the car starts to drift and you turn one way and the back end starts to come around and you turn the other way and the back end starts to come around and then you're frantically trying to straighten the car out. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what the entire family of polynomials is doing. Yep. You can turn over, you can go back up, you can do a quartic and a quintic and a sexic, sexic. <laughs> Sexy. Now we're back to promiscuous models again. <laughs> but the problem is a polynomial may work well as an approximation within a window of time, mm -hmm. right? Maybe that linear is not reflecting the slowing of reading ability as the year progresses. And we put in the quadratic, but the quadratic, even though it's approximating that within the window that we're watching, at some point that's going to flip over and go back down. And what we really want is something that slows but then maintains some value. Somebody might say asymptote. 
Ooh. But that moves us into a whole new ballgame. I absolutely want to move into those more complicated functions that you described. But before I do, I have to tell you with my simple little brain, there's another type of nonlinear function that I really, really like. And that is piecewise or spline type models. They're so simple. I always think about them. If you have some growth, let's just call it a curve. And you said, hey, I could make this part of the curve a line and I could make this part of the curve a line. For me, it's like if you look at the old Super Mario Brothers 8-bit graphics for something, <laughs> it's the Minecraft version <laughs> of growth where you just, <laughs> you're restricted to these things. You could imagine, of course, a very theoretical rationale where you say, I think that growth in the fall in reading for kids is going to follow a linear trajectory. But then, you know, we have the winter break. The kids go away for the holidays. They're not in the classroom. Then they come back. And I think that whatever growth is happening in reading after they come back might be following a different trajectory. So I could go in and I could hard code a line that goes across the first three months and then a different line that goes across the next three months where those lines are usually, they don't have to be, but are usually joined at what sometimes is called a knot. That's a spline model, a spliced line model or a piecewise model. And damn it if I don't think those are useful. Those are my favorite. We're going to get in in a few minutes to some really cool stuff. I don't know if you're aware of it, but you and Chris wrote a paper in 2015 on, <laughs> on these. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I've got that taped to my office I gotta door. I got to check that out. Oh, no. It's required reading for all my students. <laughs> There are some very cool models that exist, and I almost always find my way moving back to the piecewise. It is in the spirit of Meredith's approximation. Picturing your mind's eye now, lifetime trajectories of alcohol use. Mm -hmm. A typical curve, there's some onset in adolescence, there's an acceleration, there's a peaking in the early 20s, there's a deceleration during the 20s. And then there's a flattening out of stable social drinking for adulthood. Mm -hmm. It is virtually impossible to write an equation for that trajectory. But you could put a linear piece in adolescence yep. that you tie to the peak in early 20s, the linear piece that goes down during the 20s, tie it to a third piece, and then a flat piece that goes through adulthood. Mm -hmm. It's really interpretable. You have rise over run. Yep. You can predict those different pieces by exogenous covariates and maybe have differential prediction. Yeah. There may be factors that are associated with accelerations in adolescence that are not associated with decelerations in young adulthood. There's a separate prediction. But if you write a quadratic across the whole life of that trajectory, you're not able to isolate those. And then you can even look at the relations between the pieces among one another. So is what you do leading up to the early 20s related to what you do following the 20s? I'm a huge fan of these. And what you do is you stand up at the podium and you say, hi, everyone. My name is Patrick and I am going to approximate a nonlinear function with an additive combination of linears. And you all say, welcome, Patrick, and I go uh -huh. sit down, and you don't pretend that you have a complicated nonlinear function, but you're getting really close to it, and you get some bonus goodies at the end because of what I just described. I love all the things that you described. And you know what? It's really simple. And people who are thinking about fancy functions, they're just haters. And you know what Taylor Swift says about haters. We're really going to do this the whole time, aren't we? Hey. 
Okay, but here's some additional benefits of this. Like you said, you can have multiple segments to this, right? And what you described was very theoretically driven. It wasn't just bendy strawing your way out of it. You said, no, 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 I think a process is operating here. A process is operating here. You can do all kinds of fun things. You just described what we could call fixed knots. But we could also have spline models where you actually have the location of that knot be something that is either estimated for the data or even something that is random where individuals can have their own different knots. So imagine we're talking about the growth of kids over a particular period of time and at some time point they hit puberty. If everybody hit puberty on the same day, which would be known as the worst day ever, (laughs) (laughs) that's cool. I might fit a line to the pre-puberty and I fit a line to the post-puberty and I have that little knot at exactly 13 years, one month and three days. (laughs) But it turns out crazy that people hit puberty at different times. So it's possible to have spline models where you actually have the location of the knot as a random variable that individuals differ on. I love the spline model. It has so much versatility. It has simplification where I like simplification. It has flexibility where I like flexibility. And by the way, even though it's called spline or piecewise, piecewise is really more accurate because we don't have to splice linear components together. It's even possible to have one segment that you have that's linear and And then that knots up with something else that is part of a quadratic. You can Frankenstein all kinds of stuff together that makes theoretical sense to you in the different segments of time that you have. You can even do a freed loading where you have a first piecewise and a second piecewise and you estimate one or two of the final time points in the second piecewise. So you can, I like the term, you can Frankenstein this. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Frankenstein. I like thinking about it as sharing the load. So a single linear trajectory, we can have coding of time that's 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. A piecewise is just simply saying the first one is going to carry the weight up to a point. And time is literally 0, 1, 2, 3, 3, 3, 3. That's right. It carries it up to a point. It drops you off at the third floor. Exactly. And it doesn't go away. It sets the load down on the third floor, and the second piece has zero, 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 one, two, three, four, five, because it picks up the load. But what's really cool is you're just separating that overall linear slope into two components, and it is the technical term, cool as poop. (laughs) Exactly. Out there somewhere is a mathematician in traffic who was saying, you morons, do the hard work and exponentiate something. (sighs) Right. So there is this whole class of intrinsically nonlinear processes. You believe, for example, that there is this explosive development that occurs early on, and then it levels off up toward the top. There's one type of function called a Jens-Bailey function that looks like that. Now, the spline part of my brain says fit two lines to that. But there's actually a function that is described (laughs) by that. Or you might have something that starts off pretty slow and then it picks up speed in the middle and then it starts asymptoting off at the top, right? Something that feels very logistic in shape or you might have something that's not symmetric where that process occurs more quickly at the beginning or more quickly at the end that is more of a what's called a Gompertz curve. 
These are not things that you just go, hey, let me throw that into my model because there's no way to easily just put those parameters in in the ways that we have talked about. And the reason for that goes back to the opening of our conversation, which is that requires nonlinearity in the parameters. Yes. Anybody who has had a kid, picture your trips to the pediatrician where they show you a growth chart on height, weight, percentiles, body (laughs) mass index. That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. There's a slow growth. There's a shooting up in adolescence and puberty, and then it slows and you peak at whatever your height is that you're going to be for the rest of your life. Suddenly, we're talking about exponents and logs and powers and the whole general linear model, whether it be the variant of the multi-level model where we can introduce random effects or the entire SEM. It says, oh, I'm sorry, guys, I got to take this call and walks out. (laughs) And you're left holding an exponent that you're wondering, how the hell am I going to estimate this? Absolutely right. I will tell you, in the latent growth modeling framework or latent growth curve modeling framework that we often talk about for this, this is really, really tricky. I mean, the whole gist of the growth model is tricking a structural equation model, which is an inherently linear system. One way to go about it and a way that Chris Preacher and I have written about in a couple of- Oh, yeah. I'm, those were great, <laughs> great papers. Thank you. Wow. So the idea behind it, and we don't have time to unpack it all because it does get a little bit technical. Technical, and it requires you to do, <laughs> I'm just going to say it, a Taylor of approximation. Uh, there it is. Taylor series of appro- <laughs> Okay, I was wondering why in God's name we're talking about Taylor Swift, and there it is. That was a long walk to freedom, man. Uh-huh. I've been sitting on that. I stand in <laughs> awe. I thought there was nothing that would impress me more than that 2015 paper you wrote with Chris, and now... <laughs> I stand corrected. Yeah. Please weave in a Taylor series approximation with Taylor Swift. (laughs) I shall. So Taylor series approximations, you don't have to know exactly what those are. The idea is that if you have a particular curve, you can make that curve out of an infinite series of polynomial terms. If I add enough linear, enough quadratic, enough cubic, enough quartic, I can build something out of it that goes out to infinity, 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 infinity. infinity. What we can do with the function that we have here is we can take either what's called a first order approximation that looks at slopes along that curve in different locations. We could take a second order approximation that starts to look at the acceleration that we have that Patrick referred to. Usually, people go all lame and say, well, let's just do a first-order Taylor series approximation, which in the end takes a complicated function, whether it's a logistic-type function, an exponential function, some other crazy, hairy function, and it linearizes it, or at least it approximates it as a linear function, and then it just says, let's cut our losses and call all the rest remainder which in our case just means error or noise. Something that Chris Preacher and I wrote about in a book chapter and then again in an article is that you can reparameterize those functions to get the stuff out that you want. If I am looking at a logistic kind of function where people are on the floor, on the floor, on the floor, and then they go, ooh, and they start growing up, I could parameterize that model so that one of the key parameters, one of the factors that I would have in my latent growth model 
is the rate of change that someone has when they're going through that period of intense growth, where some people still might be a little bit flatter in that period. Some people might be very, very quick. And so what we talked about is how to take these nonlinear functions and get them into a model like this, but also to make the factors that you have represent things that you actually care about. In a book chapter, we talked about just getting the architecture of that into a latent growth model. And then in a follow-up paper, we talked about how to get individual differences in those respective parameters. There's a lot to unpack here, and it involves calculus. But I think at the very least, you should know that these kinds of functions are within our reach. It takes a lot of front end, but it is possible to get an approximation of them into our growth models. What I love about the Taylor series approximation, and you're right, it's usually the first order, and then it's just like, ah, it's close enough for government work. Yeah. And if you've not heard of Taylor series before, we actually use this a lot in the work in estimation, maximum likelihood, things like that, as we use Taylor series all the time. Oh, yeah. And rarely, if ever, do we induce Taylor Swift, but... <laughs> I'll set that aside for now. <laughs> when you think about substance use, I'm really interested in onset, acceleration, and peak. Where is that stable increase? You can approximate those with the piecewise, but there is a siren song to saying, what is the true function that governs that? And can I isolate that in these parameters, the acceleration from the asymptote? We're really bad in our modeling at asymptotes. And the reason is, is that requires a function that is intrinsically nonlinear. Yeah, I mean, given asymptotes nonlinear nature and the inherently linear nature of the latent growth modeling framework, asymptotes just had to be a problem. Don't say I didn't say I didn't warn ya. Oh, <laughs> if anybody is out there and would like to co-host a podcast, go ahead and just contact me back channel. Wait a minute. Does that mean? When it comes to these models, this is an option, right? I like having it as an alternative. Mm -hmm. The goal is to best represent the functional form of change over time in our sample so that we can take it to broader models, look at predictors, outcomes, co-development, whatever that may be. And so I very much like having that as an option. Yeah. There is not, to my knowledge, a good paper out there that goes through the things that we've talked about from a principled model building strategy. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a really neat project. How do we organize and categorize these? Some allow for likelihood ratio tests to compare, some do not. That's right. How do we build Bill Meredith's optimal approximation to change over time that we can then take and do something else with? Very briefly, there are other methods that induce nonlinearity. So the old model that Bolin and I worked on actually induces nonlinearity mm -hmm. in a similar way. The and change score model, Jack McArdle, but that induces nonlinearity. Kevin Grimm and colleagues have a nice paper showing that. 
we don't have time to delve into that, but there are other ways of doing it. But these are the ones that I most consider in my own work. I agree with you that there would be a very useful didactic piece that takes you through all of these different specifications, lays out how to do them, talks about how to do the comparisons. I think one thing is clear, though. We don't just have to pound lines into everything that we're doing. And in the end, a line might be the way to go. It's a potential balance between fit and parsimony. It doesn't capture every contour of change, but it does a really good job. But beyond that, there are other things that we can look at. So the next time you're feeling limited to linear models only... Oh, God. Come on! Do you live in a cave? Well, kind of. <laughs> can I visit? <laughs> <laughs> well, as Taylor says, huh, 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 oh, hey, baby, baby. <laughs> Everybody knows that one, so... Hey, thanks, everybody. As always, we appreciate your time. All right. Take care. See ya. Take care. Hi, this is Taylor Swift. Patrick and Greg recorded an episode ending as usual, but I re-recorded it because that's what I do. Anyway, thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for things I will eventually have the legal rights to. You can also get down to Quantitude Sick Beats on X, where they are at Quantitude Pod, and visit their website, quantitudepod.org, where you can leave a message, find organized playlists, and show notes and syllabi, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get totally cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to donorschoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast whose hosts put the ass in asymptotic behavior. Today's episode has been sponsored by, well, me. As everyone knows, I am all about using music to help work through my own problems. So if people came to me with statistical questions, here's how I would use music to help solve their problems. Like, when someone says they are going to start being better about annotating their code, all I hear is... I swear I'm gonna change, trust me, remember how that lasted for a day. And here's what I think when someone tells me they're going to use FIML to solve their missing data issues. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. And you know what you should say if a cross-lagged panel model comes into the bar and offers to buy you a drink? I knew you were trouble when you walked in. And this is what you should be thinking when reviewers tell you they really want to see a post hoc power analysis in order to decide if your paper should be accepted for publication. I don't like your little games. And finally, what does a Bayesian say after learning of their partner's secret frequentist leanings? This is most definitely not NPR. Ever.